Well, I was arrested once. It was actually just over a year ago. It was really fun. I was arrested for uh, protesting D.C.'s lack of vote. Uh, and other folks here have been arrested for the same thing, actually. I'm not sure if Peter had as much fun as I did. I was treated really, really well, gingerly even. When I was arrested just over a year ago, I was eight months pregnant. And uh, I'll tell you, I recommend being eight months pregnant if you're going to be arrested by the park police. They're very nice to you. I was cheered on by crowds of protesters. I was allowed to be the last one in the van so I would be comfortable. And I promised my daughter and made good on it that I would be home in time for dinner. I wrote a blog post after that experience about how it was for me to be arrested and how different I imagined it was for some folks. One of the things that made it fun to be arrested when I was arrested was that I was arrested with a whole group of people. We planned it out. We actually called the park police ahead of time and made sure we knew exactly what to do so we could be arrested. As it turns out, you have to sit down, not just stand. So everything was planned out well. And I was arrested with about 12 other people, a couple of pastors and uh, protesters, people involved in D.C. politics. And so we had a pretty good time together, frankly. Among that group of pastors and protesters and activists were three young black men, all in their uh, late teens, early 20s, arrested at the same time for the same reason, protesting the district's lack of voting rights. As we went around and figured out exactly what we would need to do so that we could all make it home in time for dinner, we realized that we would need $100 to bail ourselves out and write on our little slip of paper. Those young men hadn't brought $100 with them, Neither had I, actually, because of some miscommunication. So there were a number of us that needed to be bailed out by other people and used our phone calls to uh, make sure we had the right amount of money to get home. Now, these were well-connected young men, and we all were taking care of each other. One of them had actually been the D.C. youth mayor. Another was running for council, and I think getting arrested was part of his work, getting, uh, getting votes for himself. And so they were able to raise the $100 they needed for bail, and they got home in time for dinner as well. But I wondered, would it have been as fun for them if we hadn't been able to rustle up the money? One reason that getting arrested wasn't scary for me is that I'm not part of a population that is a victim of what many call mass incarceration. The New Jim Crow is a book written by Michelle Alexander with a foreword by Cornell West about the plague of mass incarceration in America, particularly affecting the black population and particularly young black men. Cornell West writes in his foreword, America's shame, the massive use of state power to incarcerate hundreds of thousands of precious, poor, black, male, and increasingly female young people in the name of a bogus war on drugs. And then he goes on later, a dark and ugly reality that has been in place for decades and that is continuous with the racist underside of American history from the advent of slavery onward. There is no doubt, he writes, that if young white people were incarcerated at the same rates as young black people, the issue would be a national emergency, end quote. I didn't know much about this national emergency until June of this year. 
when I attended the American Ethical Union Assembly up in Albany, New York, which had a whole day focused on criminal justice, largely because of the ongoing work of New York area ethical culture leaders on justice for juveniles and in other aspects of the criminal justice system. They put together an amazing program, speakers from all over the criminal justice field, and they began with a keynote address from Ernest Drucker, who wrote, A Plague of Prisons, the Epidemiology of Mass Incarceration in America. I came back from that fired up, and I want to share a little bit of what I learned, some statistics, some horror, frankly, with you, as well as some solutions or some ways to get towards solutions and some stories of humanity despite and in the horror. First of all, what do we mean by a plague of prisons? Well, Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow, writes this way. In less than 30 years, that since the war on drugs began officially or uh, was fully funded in 1982, the U.S. penal population exploded from around 300,000 to more than 2 million, with drug convictions accounting for the majority of the increase. The United States now has the highest rate of incarceration in the world, dwarfing the rates of nearly every developed country, even surpassing those in highly repressive regimes like Russia, China, and Iran. In Germany, she goes on, 93 people are in prison for every 100,000 adults and children. Okay, so just numbers are hard to listen to. So 93 people for every 100,000 uh, adults and children. In the United States, the rate is roughly eight times that, or 750 per 100,000. Ernest Drucker presented much of the same material with charts showing us this sudden increase and jump in incarcerations, which are largely because of drug arrests. And he asked the question, so what do we think happened? Did people just get worse suddenly? Is America made up of worse people than all the other countries in the world? We're not worse people, Drucker would say, and Alexander would agree. In fact, Alexander says, and I quote, crime rates in the U.S. have not been markedly higher than those of other Western countries, despite our very much higher incarceration rates. Both Drucker and Alexander point to the racial dimension of mass incarceration in the United States. Alexander writes, no other country in the world imprisons so many of its racial and ethnic minorities. In Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, it is estimated that three out of four young black men and nearly all those in the poorest neighborhoods can expect to serve time in prison, end quote. That's from Michelle Alexander's book. It's not just time in prison, although that statistic is alarming. But it's what happens after release from prison as well. When Alexander and Drucker talk about mass incarceration, Alexander in particular is talking about the creation of a permanent underclass that cannot get out, cannot move up, cannot change who they are in our society and in the world. She writes... And I, I don't usually use so many quotes, but, you know, Michelle Alexander is pretty good. So we're just getting a lot of quotes from her today. She writes, Today it is perfectly legal to discriminate against criminals in nearly all the ways that it was once legal to discriminate against African Americans. Once you're labeled a felon, the old forms of discrimination, employment discrimination, housing discrimination, denial of the right to vote, denial of educational opportunity, denial of food stamps and other public benefits, and exclusion from jury service are suddenly legal. 
As a criminal, you have scarcely more rights and arguably less respect than a black man living in Alabama at the height of Jim Crow. We have not ended racial caste in America. We have merely redesigned it, end quote. Michelle Alexander sees the criminal justice system as specifically trying to control the black population, as Jim Crow laws did before. She points to the fact that drug war policy was put into place and fully funded actually before the crack cocaine epidemic. Staff were hired by the White House to publicize the crack cocaine epidemic, which incidentally largely occurred because of drugs that were run into the country because of our country's um, illicit war, uh, uh, wars in Nicaragua, but anyway, we're not going into that. Um, she sees a... Sh- so, the, so that there is a... Um, so sh- what she asks us to do is shift our thinking from understanding the criminal justice system as plagued by racism, which is what I always understood, to being actually a tool used to create a racist caste system, a system that people cannot get out of, cannot move out of in America. Ernest Drucker uses the metaphor of plague, plague of prisons, and looks at it from an epidemiological standpoint. Now, we don't necessarily set out to create a plague, and there's a possibility, I think, in what Drucker says, that people thought they were going to lower crime rates through drug policies and criminal justice work around that. Whether or not we see intention behind the racial caste system that's been created, here we are. Our crime rate is not lower, which could have been what we might have hoped, thanks to drug policies and criminal justice. It's not higher than other countries, so it's a little uh, unclear why our incarceration has jumped so much. And we have indeed a mass incarceration of black men in this country, a plague of prisons, as Drucker calls it. I like the work both of Michelle Alexander and Ernest Drucker because they take a collective approach to the problem. Rather than looking at the individual in prison, at the individual prison, they ask, what did our society do that has moved this huge population into prison? What has our society collectively agreed to? What do we continue to support so that we go from 300,000 to 2 million in prison, incarcerated, in, in 30 years? It makes me think about Martin Luther King's work, his famous quote that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, and tells us that the problem of the criminal justice system, whether it affects us personally in our lives or not, is our problem, part of the society that we support and live in. And so the solutions are ours to take as well. Ernest Drucker provided in his keynote address three approaches or needs that he saw in the criminal justice system, three ways to look at possible, at both challenges and possible solutions, and I want to share those three with you. The first one, and I think this is obvious as we've looked at some of the causes for that change in incarceration uh, rates, is drug policy reform. That might include the legalization of some drugs or the decriminalization and medicalization of other drugs. And it certainly would involve changing laws and practices that unfairly target urban black populations. All studies indicate, including uh, studies based on the rate of overdoses from drug use, that the black population is not using drugs at any higher rate than the white population. In fact, young white folks seem to be most likely to have the highest rates of drug use. 
but that's not reflected in incarceration rates. There's a disparity there, and that's the disparity that drug policy reform tries to look at as it works to change laws. Another approach, another source of problems and approach for solutions is looking at human rights within the criminal justice system. Here I'm talking about things like the practice of isolation units. Isolation is used more and more frequently in our criminal justice system. It doesn't appear to be rehabilitative in any way, but is actually a kind of torture uh, to isolate people uh, completely from human contact. Another kind of isolation in our criminal justice system is separation from communities, from families that can be a source of support. That's also something that leads to recidivism when people exit prison because they've been completely cut off from their communities. This month, our Share the Plate will support Hope House in D.C., an organization that was started to support, was started with a small mission and it's really expanded. The first mission was um, many D.C. uh, prisoners are shipped to far-off states because D.C. doesn't have the uh, system to have them in prison, incarcerated here in D.C. or even close. And so Hope House was begun to help fathers who were imprisoned record their voices reading storybooks for their children so that the children could hear their fathers reading stories to them back home and begin to create that bond that is so often broken uh, by incarceration. Uh, some of the other, uh, another approach to that kind of separation from families and communities is working to keep prisons uh, local, to keep people as close as possible to their own communities so that they can keep support and have visits while they're incarcerated. One, another, um, another place for need in human rights in prisons is in the treatment of parents and pregnant mothers in prison. We get into immigration reform here and immigration detention centers. Currently, many of those are outside of the regular criminal justice system in America, which actually takes them out of what protections the criminal justice system offers, things like right to a lawyer and fair trials. Immigration is pulled out of that system. And so immigration detention centers offer a whole other need within the criminal justice system. We're connected here as we talk about human rights uh, uh, abuses in prison to the privatization of the prison system, something that is legal in some but not all states where private corporations run prisons. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that if prisons are privatized with corporations that have stakeholders uh, running them, that the best thing for the companies running those prisons economically is more people in prison. Um, And there's a lot of concern both about how people are treated within those private prisons, privately run prisons, and also how involved the corporations that run them are in making laws and policies that feed our nation's mass incarceration rate. I haven't even touched the entanglement of mental health and criminal justice and how we serve those who have mental health needs and have, um, and have committed crime, how we serve them both in prison and outside of prison in alternatives to incarceration. And then, of course, there's the rights of people leaving prison, the ability to engage in the system positively. And that one affects all of us. Because as people leave prison and are denied access to any kind of legal job, the jobs left to them are illegal ones. 
And so recidivism rates are exceedingly high in the United States. So all of those are ways that we can work with the system, within the system, the current criminal justice system, to increase human rights within the system that we operate in. The third piece, we've got drug policy reform to lower mass incarceration rates, human rights work to make stays in prison more acceptable within commonly uh, held uh, human rights practice. And then the third prong, and I think in many ways the one that is of of particular um, uh, care and interest to those of us in ethical culture and progressive religious movements is that of restorative justice, a whole different way of looking at the justice system. Restorative justice seeks a kind of justice that is communal, that is, as I found online, a definition repairing the harm caused by the crime. It looks at forgiveness, restoration, and wholeness from a societal level, seeking to connect those who commit crime to their victims and to the communities that are ripped apart by crime as well. There are actually some amazing international examples of restorative justice. The South African Commission on Truth and Reconciliation, which um, came into being after the end of apartheid and offered amnesty to those who were willing to go before the commission and admit fully what they had done, speak to their victims and their victims' families, look into their eyes, and seek reconciliation and wholeness together. I heard a story a number of years ago now as well about uh, restorative justice at work in Rwanda where um, Hutu and Tutsi folks who lived, uh, the, the, way, the way genocide works in Rwanda, it, it's really neighbor to neighbor. So Hutus and Tutsis live in the same village, they're intermarried. And so you have whole villages and neighborhoods where generations back, um, You've had somebody kill your next-door neighbor. Your husband was killed by your neighbor's husband, who then was killed by the neighbor's husband down, down the block. Well, those communities that, you know, folks still live in those communities and still live in that way. And so through restorative justice works and actually through their need for economic cooperation, Rwandan, um, Rwandan neighbors have come together found forgiveness with each other as they've admitted what has happened in their lives and then moved forward to create coffee collectives where they've actually um, brought economic stability back to their villages, villages that are almost entirely bereft of men because all of the men were killed. In American communities, restorative justice looks like groups of citizens who come together to serve on kinds of restorative justice juries or panels, and they're cropping up all over America in different towns and jurisdictions. People that come together inviting folks to opt out of the criminal justice system and opt into a system of reparation and wholeness. Working with with offenders to come up with punishments that focus on rehabilitation and communal uh, communal creation, creation of community together that encourage empathy toward victims and wholeness in community. So how is all of this ethical cultures issue? Why did it come up at the American Ethical Union Assembly? Why are we talking about it today? It's a good thing for me, actually, that it did come up at the American Ethical Union Assembly because I had already promised to speak about it. At a Young and the Thirsty event, which is one of our young adult gatherings a number of months ago, we got into a conversation about the criminal justice system. 
the folks who were in the room, well, actually in the bar um, that night, are in the room this morning, actually. I think all of them, so I'm a little nervous whether I'm doing justice, so to speak, to our conversation then. But we talked about the fact that criminal justice and restorative justice were pieces that were deeply entrenched, deeply connected to ethical culture. I wrote a quote from that conversation that day into my iPhone and sent it to myself in preparation for this platform I knew I'd give someday. And what I wrote down, I think, came from one of the young adults, not from me. There's a religious piece, I wrote down, around inherent worth that continues despite wrong. What we talked about was ethical culture's deep belief and affirmation in the inherent worth of people, even when people make wrong choices, bad choices, and how ethical culture could then support continuing to affirm that worth when society had said that that worth was over, that that worth didn't exist, and that all that remained for that person was punishment. We talked about the way our current criminal justice system allows us to put our our problems into a box, to ship them off, sometimes states over, and pretend they don't exist. And we talked about our need as ethical culturists to take them out of that box, to recognize our societal involvement in the criminal justice system in mass incarceration, to recognize that we are part of community, of society, of the whole that comes together. In late May, I gave a platform here at West about the importance of telling good stories. And as I've waded through some of these statistics, as I've looked at those charts with the spike of incarceration rates, as I hear about three in four black men in D.C. expecting to go to prison in their lifetime, I've reminded myself about the importance of telling good stories even here. And so there are a couple I want to share with you. One is from an article in the New York Times that you may have seen a few months ago, an article about how the prison system in America is dealing with an aging population, an aging population that all of America shares. It's not uh, singular to the prison system. And particularly how they're dealing with patients who develop dementia. It was looking especially at Alzheimer's patients, but at dementia more broadly. Now, they're doing different things in different places. In New York State, there's actually a a facility specifically for prisoners with dementia, with paid caregivers to, to provide for them. But there are some states that simply can't afford that kind of facility. They, too, need to deal with an aging population and with problems of dementia. And it looked specifically at a program in California, in one of the California prison systems, uh, the uh, facility called the California Men's Colony, where a, a, seri- a group of prisoners, all of them in essentially for life, some with possibility of parole, were trained by the Alzheimer's Association to become what were called the gold coats. They wear gold uniforms instead of the standard issue blue to distinguish them. The gold coats are peer-to-peer support for prisoners with dementia and Alzheimer's. And and the article describes what they do, how they help their fellow prisoners to bathe, how they clean up after them, how they sit with them at lunch and both encourage them to eat and protect their food from others because one of the challenges is that prisoners with dementia are at risk for um, to, to be to be stole, stolen from, taken from by other prisoners. So how they have both a protective and um, a protective role and a role in caring for those prisoners. 
What I was most taken by, though, was the quotes from some of the gold coats themselves. One of them, um, uh, the chief psychologist at the California Men's Colony, shared that prisoners were appreciative that someone from the outside world thought that they could do this, that they could take on this responsibility. One of the prisoners, one of the gold coats, wrote in an evaluation about the program, thank you for allowing me to feel human. Gold coats say they are moved by the work. Mr. Burdick, who during 35 years in prison lost a wife to AIDS and a 16-year-old daughter to suicide, said, I'm a person who was broken. Dementia patients often, and I quote, don't even say thank you, he said, but they just pat me like that, and I know what that means. Mr. Kanyas, another of the gold coats at California Men's Colony, said, I didn't have any feelings about other people before the program. I mean, in that way, I was a predator. Now, he said, I'm a protector. Programs like this and other programs, there's one I just saw recently where prisoners are helping to train guide dogs while in prison. They shift prisoners' understandings of themselves. They provide a little glimpse into that worth that we say we affirm in other people. I saw cause for celebration and good stories at the American Ethical Union Assembly as well, as speakers shared about their work in prisons. New York rehabilitation through the arts brings art, poetry, and dance, and song to prison populations, and then works with, with folks as they leave prison as well, encouraging them to see those, uh, those forms as a place for self-expression. There was a district attorney who spoke at the conference who actually started his remarks by um, saying he was glad there was no lunch served during his remarks because he was worried tomatoes might be thrown at him. Um, This was the district attorney in Albany, New York. But he's a district attorney who ran on a platform, actually, of changing drug policy laws, changing the way they were implemented in New York State. Working with Governor Patterson, who was also at the, uh, at the American Ethical Union Assembly, they have made a lot of reforms in drug policy in New York and really changed the incarceration rates in their, in their state. We heard also from the Bard Prison Initiative, which um, brings higher education, college-level education, well, really college education, it's not college level, it's college education, to prisons around New York City. I really liked the person who spoke from the Bard Prison Initiative because he said at the outset that he wasn't all that interested in criminal justice reform. He was an educator, and what he was interested in was great students who wanted to learn. So that's why he worked in the prison system, because he found them there. Wes has its own history of work with the prison system. I've heard about the prison art show that occurred a couple of times, I think, at the Washington Ethical Society art that was produced by prisoners and that had a showing here in our main hall and in other places in the building. What I've heard is that neighbors were upset about that, worried about what might come with a prison art show, and that Wes stood up to those, to those concerns and said that it was about affirming worth, that it was about giving voice and expression to people behind bars. Another thing that brings me good stories and and hope in the times of despair is music. And I've been thinking about a favorite song of mine growing up. 
I think we've sung it here before, so you might know it. The first verse is, My life flows on in endless song, above earth's lamentation. I hear the real, though far-off hymn that hails a new creation. Through all the tumult and the strife, I hear the music ringing. It sounds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? It's a gospel hymn with two verses written in the 19th century about joy found in the midst of despair, any kind of despair. But I've thought of it recently because of a third verse, which was added in the McCarthy era by Doris Plenn, written for those who lost jobs and freedom because of a refusal to sign loyalty oaths. Now, that kind of loss of freedom is a sort of civil disobedience, like my own jail time. But I think the words that Doris Plenn wrote can speak to something much broader. When tyrants tremble as they hear the bells of freedom ringing, when friends rejoice both far and near, how can I keep from singing? To prison cell and dungeon vile, our thoughts to them are winging. When friends by shame are undefiled, how can I keep from singing? Most prisoners in America's prison system aren't there because of civil disobedience, and most of them don't have fun. Some are there because of draconian drug laws. Some did something horrific, something terrible. But I dream of a time when our response to those who do wrong is to help them do right, when rather rather than punishment, we work for true rehabilitation and restoration of their own selves and of the community, when we don't shame people, but when we weep for them, weep for their victims, weep for the society that allowed this to happen, and when we work to change those things, when above all, we hold at the center of our beings ourselves and as a community and as a whole society, at the center of our beings, the inherent worth that never dies, that spark that never goes out, then truly, to prison cell and dungeon vile, our thoughts to them are winging, when friends by shame are undefiled, how can I keep from singing.